Thank you so much. It's great to be here again uh, talking about a subject that I uh, dearly love, um, and I appreciate you taking time out of this Sunday. Uh, and I'm going to talk about, obviously, about Supreme Court, a few issues related to the Supreme Court. Uh, you forgive me if I dab myself. I, I, oh, the roads were closed off, so I did a 100-yard dash over here, <laughs> uh, which uh, <laughs> I had everyone uh, bringing out chest paddles to restart my heart. Um, but I, 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 was once, I was once told by, when I wrote for LA Times, I gave a speech at our editor's uh, club, and I came late from, the L, from Los Angeles airport, and, and uh, my editor, I said, I'm really sorry. And he was obviously very upset that I was about 10 minutes late, and he says, you know, speeches are like articles. We can't produce good ones all the time, but we can produce them on time. <laughs> uh, so I've tried not to be late since then. Um, now, obviously, we're living uh, much like the Chinese curse in interesting times. Uh, we have the passing of uh, Nino Scalia. Uh, I had the great pleasure of uh, knowing Justice Scalia, even though we, were, uh, we had disagreements, very serious ones about some issues. We had agreements on others. Uh, but I liked him uh, personally a great deal. In fact, I don't know anyone that didn't like Nino Scalia. You know, part of the problem that we have today is that everything is so personal. Uh, our politics is personal. You know, we now have this sort of cult of personality that surrounds every possible candidate. And with that trend has, comes a certain toxicity where you can't like a person, uh, even though uh, you disagree. Well, I like Nino Scalia a great deal. And I, you know, Scalia and I shared one thing that, that brought us together, and that's I'm half Sicilian, and uh, he was all Sicilian. Uh, he used to refer to me as the half Sicilian. Uh, I'm half Sicilian, half Irish. And I, he actually stopped that when I finally reminded him that his children have my same mix. Uh, so he'd have to start referring to his children as half Sicilians. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it, when, when Nino passed, um, I, I was actually at a movie with, with my, my boys. And uh, I stepped outside and I, uh, I did an, an NBC interview on the phone. And... Uh, and the um, anchor said, you know, do you have any memories of Nino? And, I said, and the one that came to my mind immediately, uh, which really sums up Nino Scalia, uh, is that years ago we were both invited to meet with this Sicilian senator. It was a dinner with this senator. I forgot his name, but he was a mafia-busting uh, senator. And uh, because I'm part Sicilian, uh, I was invited, and uh, so is uh, Nino. And, and he was holding forth at this uh, bay window, uh, telling one of his stories. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, the Italian security uh, kept on trying to move us away from the window, and Scalia wouldn't have it. And uh, one of the security, the head of security came up to me and said, you don't understand, um, there's a hit out on the senator's life, and we believe that the team may be in Washington. And I uh, and he tried again, and he turned and says, "Does he not understand what I'm saying?" And he says, "Oh no, he understands it, but you understand Justice Scalia is telling a story, and and quite frankly, he'd rather die uh, than <laughs> uh, than end that story. But I'll tell you one thing: I'm real certain he'd rather we die uh, uh, before he ends that story. But the fact is that that Scalia." Since the minute he came out of the court, people were trying to do exactly what that guy was trying to do, move him to the left or the right, and he wouldn't move. He was already pretty far right, but he wouldn't move any further. Um, and that's what's interesting about Scalia's legacy, is that Scalia has a legacy, uh, and it will last. 
Why? Because he's one of the, the relatively few justices that came to the court and left in the same position. Uh, he changed the court rather than the court changed him. Now, you might not think he changed it for the better, but he changed the court, and he didn't change himself. And the question is why, and it's because he has principles. You can disagree with the principles, but he had them, and that's a good thing. You know, I was once asked by Ed when I was speaking to the ABA, you know, who on this court, because I'm a very big critic of the Supreme Court and the selection process, and he said, who would you keep on the Supreme Court? And I said, well, um, I'd keep Souter just because he's the only justice I know who doesn't think he was born to be on the Supreme Court. <laughs> I, and you know what? Humility goes a long way in my view. It actually makes a very good judge to be humble. And, and Souter was the most humble, decent man I'd ever met. Um, and the one, second was Scalia. I said, I disagree with him. But if you're going to have a conservative justice on the court, make sure it's a principled one. And this guy has principles, and it is consistent. Um, and I, I still believe that to be true. So what's, what's terribly ironic about the passing of Scalia is that this term was supposed to be historic. See, for years, many of us who handicapped the Supreme Court, talked about the court, um, have criticized the court because of the nine-justice split, the 5-4 split. The court often reaches nuanced, what they call nuanced opinions, what lower court judges call madness. Okay? And um, I speak to, to, to the different judicial conferences each year, and I would say 99% of those conferences, one of the first questions from judges, is why is the Supreme Court so out of touch? These are from judges. Because they get these things back, and they don't know what to do with them because they're nuanced, split decisions. They don't, sometimes they make it worse. So what's interesting about this, this term is in six areas, the court took cases that were bright-line cases. Cases were clearly... The justices that approved those, who accepted cert, believe they had five judges, uh, justices for a clear decision. So this was ramping up to be historic, affirmative action, abortion, union fees, everything. So when Scalia passed away, it went from being historic to a not-so-historic term. Because if the court splits, as they already have in the teacher union case, the lower court decision holds. So really not anything major has happened in precedent, and that's what we're looking at in terms of many of these decisions. Uh, and so people like Justice Scalia once said that 4-4 splits is a, quote, waste of time. He said that many years ago. And indeed, some may view it uh, as a waste of time. I don't. Um, there's a lot of things the court can do. One is they can withhold a decision. They can hold a decision uh, for the next justice. Well, who's the next justice going to be? Well, this is, how many justices have we had? Anyone know? The 125. This is the 125th nomination. I should actually quiz them. Are they awake enough for quizzes? <laughs> um, I, I did not come here. Well, I, 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 we have brave students sitting in the front. Usually everyone, uh, like those students, sit in the back because uh, they don't want to get called on. Um, but uh, this, is, this is the 125th nomination. Now, one of the things that is a, a constant problem with someone who I uh, both teaches constitutional law and does media work, is that what actually is said in the media is often, shall we say, rather inaccurate. Um, and when you have politicians talking about Supreme Court history, it's a bloody disaster. Um, so who's right and who's wrong and what have they been saying about this nomination? And the answer is, and you're probably not too surprised, they're both right and wrong. 
uh, that if, by my judgment, looking at the claims of Democrats and Republicans, both are about 50% wrong. Uh, now, in Washington, by the way, that's a passing grade. And nowhere else, I mean, that's actually, that's like a high score uh, in Washington. Um, for the rest of us, it, it's not so good. But um, let's go, let's talk about some of the sort of things that we're hearing and whether they're accurate uh, or not. Uh, first of all, how long does a nomination normally take? Now, this, the problem with this question, which comes up a lot, is that you're talking about very different courts. If you go back to the early Supreme Court um, you're talking about a vastly different court of a different size and a different process of nomination. But if you go from the first nominee to Garland, the average is 25 days. Okay, so it's, it's relatively short. Okay? Uh, but that really doesn't mean much. I mean, you really want to look at what they're called modern or uh, nominations. I, now, the, the current members, if you just look at the current members, which is probably a good measure uh, since they cover a number of decades, uh, it's 68 days. Okay, so that's more of a measure of the average nomination. Okay? The longest, by the way, was one of the greatest. Louis Brandeis was the longest nomination in history. That was 125 days. And, of course, he turned out to be one of the greats. Um, he was also the first Jewish uh, member. Uh, and the, the length of that probably had something to do with the religion of the nominee. Uh, he was on the court with um, a couple of anti-Semites, including one of the worst anti-Semites uh, in history, who actually, if you look at the uh, portraits in the Supreme Court, there's a couple without a full court, and that's because McReynolds refused to be, according to legend, painted in the same picture with a Jew. Uh, and then later, he insisted on his being painted looking away from Brandeis, which is a really, which is a really hilarious thing because he was a certifiable moron, and he was, I mean, really, I mean, he was truly one of the worst justices in history, and he didn't want to look at one of the greatest ones, but uh, there it figures. Now, by the way, now here's your test. Okay, now let's get into some serious tests, if everyone said coffee. Uh, who, was, who was the shortest nominee? Who was sitting on this court? Who had the shortest nomination? You think Kagan? It was Roberts. The Roberts, it was 19 days, which in Supreme Court nominations is as fast as you get. That's NASCAR. Okay? <laughs> Although, you know, if you're coming for the crashes, you want to look at who the longest is. Who do you think the longest is? Now, this one you should get, right? Who on the court have the longest? What? Thomas. Ah, that's right, Thomas. Thomas. 99 days. You guys are doing quite well. You're doing better than the 50% average. Uh, Ginsburg, someone said Ginsburg was actually 50 days. She had um, one of the shortest. Uh, Kennedy was 65 days. We're going to talk about it in a second. You can't really count Kennedy. Uh, but I'm afraid Kagan was the second longest at 87 days. So the trend is going up. Now let's talk about vote margin. Now this one's a tough one. Okay. Who on this court do you think had the best vote margin? And I'll give you the vote margin. It was 97 to 0. We have Breyer. Any other guests? Kennedy is correct. There's a curve breaker back there. Um, <laughs> Kennedy is correct. Now, this one, everyone should get. So you should be careful if you say it with the wrong name. Um, who had the worst? Thomas. Thomas was 52-48. Uh, the um, second worst was Alito. The third worst was Kagan. 
Alito was 58-42. Uh, uh, Kagan was 63-37. Okay. Now, a lot of people say you have the Democrats or Republicans. Democrats are saying, look, we've had nominations in election years. This is not all of that irregular. Republicans are saying it's almost never happened in history. Okay. Once again, they're both half right. Okay. The fact is, it is rare to have a nomination uh, in an election year. Of course, we've only had 125, but it is pretty rare. By my count, I think there's about 14. Okay. If you, you know, particularly if you're looking at, um, uh, if you don't count. Uh, Solomon Chase and uh, Ward Hunt um, and William Woods. Uh, they occur, they, their nominations technically occurred before December. So, so uh, you've got about 14. Now what's interesting about that is that 13 of the 14 occurred before World War II. Okay. Now the outlier and the ones that the Democrats are citing and they are correct is Kennedy. They're saying, look, we did this with Kennedy. There was all this hoopla. In that sense, they are correct. But the Republicans are correct uh, when they don't want, they don't think Kennedy is that much of a measure. And the, end, the question, and I think the Republicans are right on that one too. Why? Um, because Kennedy was, his seat did not open up in the last year. He was third on a match. Okay, Two other nominees had been denied. So he really wasn't, an election year nomination. That nomination had been sitting around a long time. Okay, now here's, we go into the Wayback Machine. Here's the interesting trivia, right? Who was the first one denied for Kennedy's seat? And he then became, this gives you a hint, both a verb and a noun. Bork, Bork correct. So he did get immortality because he is now borked, um, uh, as in someone who is ambushed in a confirmation uh, hearing. Now, this one is the real tough one. Who followed Bork? Douglas Ginsburg is correct. And why did he not get it? Smoke pot. And you know, the interesting, you know, I just spoke in Colorado about Supreme Court. And, and I said, you know, it's, it's fun to be here to talk about history because I can only imagine, you know, here in Colorado that, you know, because uh, Doug Ginsburg, I believe, had a house there. And I was like, I can only imagine Doug Ginsburg sitting around saying, yeah, thanks for getting to that, um, you know, and legalizing marijuana just a little late. Uh, um, it seems almost quaint now that you could have a guy that was tanked for smoking pot, but there you go. So Kennedy, one of the reasons he had a large margin, one of the reasons uh, of the late nomination was because it was third. And finally, the Senate said, okay, this guy uh, is ready to go. He's, there's not much you can say against him. All right. Now, is it true that you know, past presidents have not uh, been barred uh, due to these sort of political divisions? The answer is no. Uh, in fact, uh, there have been nominees that have not had a vote uh, because of the division of the Senate uh, with the White House. Uh, John Tyler is a good example. John Tyler, I believe, had nine nominees, uh, and they were pretty much stopped uh, by the opposing uh, party uh, until the next election. Uh, Fillmore also had some serious problems in that regard. All right. So uh, how about the fact that, you know, Nominees, as long as they're qualified, are confirmed. The answer is no. Okay. Uh, first of all, a lot of them weren't particularly qualified uh, and still got confirmed. Uh, but um, no, 
uh, there have been 34 rejections out of 125. That's not a small number. 16 out of 34, by my count, were because of politics. Okay, so on that one, uh, the Republicans probably have the advantage. Okay. I, now, the question then is what happens to, <laughs> to Judge Garland, um, who is truly uh, the sad sack nominee? I, I don't know Garland as a friend. I know him uh, just in normal Washington uh, running across people. I have a lot of respect for Judge Garland. I don't know anyone that doesn't have respect for Judge Garland. I, the chances that he will get a vote, I would say, are nil. I, I was very surprised I, by uh, Michael McConnell coming out within an hour of the death saying there would not be a vote. The reason I was surprised by that is you're not supposed to say stuff like that in the open. Um, I, usually in Washington, you ice pick a nominee. You don't talk about it. You don't say, I'm bringing an ice pick and I'm going to stick it in your head. I, that's not how Washington works. Um, so there was obviously a reason why he wanted to make it clear. And part of it is to get it off the table, you know, to make sure that people aren't debate, you know, making this a political issue. Also, I think the Republicans view the Supreme Court as if they pick a garland, you take that off the table politically. Uh, when this is a very significant issue for conservatives. The fact is, this is transformative. Uh, you know, no matter who is selected by, uh, nominated by President Obama, it's going to move the center of gravity to the left, even if you take an, a, a moderate. You're also, re you're also replacing an, an icon uh, of the right. So there's a lot of reasons why you want to do that. The reason I still think that was a mistake, and I said it so at the time, is that we were in a real recess. And I say a real recess because the president uh, was found to have acted unconstitutionally in previous recess appointments in the so-called Canning case. Indeed, he succeeded in unifying the Supreme Court. It was a vote of nine to zero. Um, I actually testified on those nominations when they were made. Uh, I said they were unconstitutional, even though I liked uh, uh, um, the nominees, actually. And I actually agreed with the president that the, uh, the Senate was wrong not to confirm them. But this, the president was still wrong uh, in uh, giving what was an clearly, in my view, an unconstitutional nomination, uh, um, uh, recess appointment. Uh, but this one, he could have put a, someone on the Supreme Court. He could have done it that hour. Uh, so it was a big risk for McConnell. He could have gone ahead and put a recess appointment on. That was a real recess. But he didn't. And now you have different scenarios that can play out. But McConnell, to my surprise, has snuffed them out. And McConnell's not the type of guy that, I, that, is, that goes back on stuff like this. He tends to, when he draws a line, he tends to hold the line. Um, so it was a little surprising, because I thought that one of the scenarios that might be playing out is McConnell would say no vote before the election. But then there's a period in which the Senate is still in session and President Obama's still in the White House. And I thought, well, maybe McConnell's saying, look, uh, if Hillary Clinton or uh, Bernie Sanders wins, we'll take the moderate that we know, then the liberal we don't. And we'll just go ahead and push Garland through. Uh, McConnell said no. Uh, in, a couple weeks ago, he said, I will not let that happen. Uh, so then there's a second scenario, which is really bizarre. And if you come to these things to watch the cars crash, this one's my favorite. Um, there's a 17-day period where the new Senate comes in and the president is still in office. It's a blink. 
like 17 days, okay? Technically, if the Democrats were to take the Senate, could they actually push the Garland nomination? I think so. But they'd have to shoot the filibuster rule. And, you know, if they win the Senate, it's not going to be by much. If they shoot the last part of the filibuster rule, it's going to be all-out war. I mean, they, 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 both houses will go into a total shutdown. Um, would the president do that? I don't know. I don't think so. Uh, because you might not win, but it would be you would be leaving the White House with an absolute riot uh, on the Hill, and I'm not too sure he'd want that as a legacy. Uh, so um, that leaves Judge Garland in the world's worst position. Okay, it's it's you know when Garland was nominated, I said I don't know a nominee that should embrace this. I mean, this is one of those things. If I got a call from the White House, I'd say let the cup pass from my lips. Okay, uh, because you know, you know the the thing is, um, as much as I respect Judge Garland, you know, uh, in Chicago there was a, there was a, these golden rules I was raised with, and the first one was don't be a chump. Uh, and you know, in Chicago, that's the worst thing to be a chump. And if someone gave a phone call to me, I'd say, God, this seems a lot like I'm a chump. Um, but I can see why he took it. There was a small chance. The problem with this is that you end up damaged goods. But more importantly, Garland is not necessarily the nominee that the new administration would want, certainly not necessarily what, what Trump would want if he wins. I, what's interesting is it might not be what, it may be what Hillary Clinton would want personally, because um, frankly I think she's more conservative than lets on. But... Um, Certainly, her administration, it's not, he's, he's too conservative. Because she just ran on reform and criminal justice. And Garland is very conservative. He is not moderate on criminal justice cases. His vote is very much like Sam Alito. I was taken aback when I looked at all of his cases. I wrote a piece on Sam Alito, raising a question about Sam Alito because he was so um, almost universal in rejecting uh, claims by criminal defendants uh, universal and ruling for the police. And I wrote a column saying, look, that's not good. You know, a good example is Scalia. Scalia would rule against the police uh, on things like the Fourth Amendment and other things. He would rule against the police. Alito never, really didn't when he was on the Court of Appeals. I got to tell you, he, Garland's close to Alito uh, in how he views his former prosecutor is extremely uh, conservative on that issue. Now, he's not on other issues. He is, in fact, a legitimate moderate if you look at all of the issues. So, but that one issue is one that Clinton campaigned on. So I don't know how that would, would work. Um, so the odds of there being a Justice Garland, not high. And I don't think that, I, I, I say that with no sense of joy because I think he's a very decent man. And he actually is extremely qualified. He is very smart. And uh, he has the respect of all the judges on both sides of the aisle. He's been a very successful uh, uh, judge on D.C. Circuit. So that means the next president is likely to appoint someone, uh, someone new. Okay. Now, I, I know we have questions, so I'm going to talk about one thing that, that whenever I talk about Supreme Court, I insist on uh, discussing uh, as payment uh, for the speech, and you have to sit through it. And that is... Um, for years, I've had a, a proposal that's been rattling around in Congress uh, to reform the Supreme Court. 
And I'm just going to mention it briefly, uh, as I always do. I talk about this with cab drivers and waitresses and, <laughs> and anybody uh, who, who will listen. Um, I think the problems that we're having today, which are ludicrous, okay? I mean, I've already said publicly that Garland should get a hearing and a vote. Um, I think it's wrong not to give him a hearing and a vote. Do the Republicans have to give him a hearing and vote? No. Okay, so there's a lot of nonsense out there saying it's unconstitutional for the Republicans to deny a vote. That's totally not true. The Republicans can refuse a vote. They can withhold advice and consent. And there is no court in the country that would rule differently. So people have been talking about that on the Internet. I can just put that one away. Okay? Um, so they can do what they're doing. Should they do it? No. They should give the man a hearing, and they should give him a vote. You want to filibuster him? I don't care. Filibuster him. But give the man a chance to go to the Senate floor. Then you filibuster. Then you do whatever the rules allow you to do. But uh, they don't listen to me much. Um, so the problem that we're having today is a direct result of the fact that our Supreme Court is demonstrably too small. Okay? We have one of the smallest courts of any major nation. And what's interesting about that is that our closest allies, you know, you know Germany, Israel, France, uh, Japan, all of them have larger courts. Why? Because they don't want to have the concentration of power in so few of hands. That just happens to be, by the way, the defining principle of the framers of our Constitution. The main thing that motivated them in creating the tripartite system and creating the rules of the first articles, three articles, of the Constitution was to avoid the concentration of power in any person or any branch. So we have a court that actually does the exact opposite of what the framers believed, but also takes a different course from our allies. And the result has been disastrous. Uh, because we have a nine-member court, ever since we went to the number nine, we have had a split court with a single swing justice problem. Now, first of all, it's important to remember that some people don't realize that the number of justices on the court is not specified by the Constitution. So Article 3 does not state how many members should be on the Supreme Court. And what will come as a surprise to many is we've had a court of different size uh, throughout our history. So the first court had technically six justices. Uh, in fact, when they first met at the Royal Exchange Building in New York, only two showed up. Okay. Uh, so you had six, and at that time we had a court of two. Okay, it was not a good number. Okay. Um, so it's been a lot smaller, and it's been bigger. Now, why does it fluctuate? And the answer is that it used to be that justices rode circuit. So they would actually get out and handle real cases in the states. So if you added a circuit, you had to add a justice. Right? So when we added a Tenth Circuit in, I think, uh, was it 1870, around there, um, we added a justice. We had ten justices. Now, the justices hated this. Now, first of all, these were not young men at a time when you know, longevity was shorter than it is today. So for some of these guys, going circuit, really, you didn't expect to come back. Um, <laughs> And, you know, the justices actually would talk particularly with derision about Ohio and Kentucky uh, was basically they viewed on the court your death knell. If you get the Ohio-Kentucky run, 
uh, you just make sure your, your affairs are in order type of thing. <laughs> Um, they would just refer to this as like they were going to the Amazon, which is, which is still very much true. And um, so I, they hated it, and they constantly went to Congress and said, we can't write circuit, we can't write circuit, can't write circuit. So um, in the late 1800s, around 1870, not long after the Tenth Circuit was formed, uh, the Congress reached a concession with these complaining justices, and they killed the writing of the circuit. And at the time, they also eliminated the Tenth Circuit. They decided they didn't need it. So they allowed that spot, when it came open, to basically lay barrel, just basically not fill it. And that is the only reason we have nine justices. It's complete accidental. We've never, in the history of this republic, actually had a debate of what the size of the Supreme Court should be. Now, doesn't that strike you as just absolutely absurd? Like every other part of our government, we actually have thought about had an intelligent conversation. And, you know, we don't always get it right, but we get a lot of it right. We're always hard on ourselves, but we've made good decisions, right? Not this one. The most important court in the judicial branch, right? Oh, yeah, I'm going to talk about that in a second. So, you know, the question is, by the way, when they got rid of the Tenth Circuit and got rid of writing uh, circuit, there was one member of Congress from Indiana who stood up and gave a spontaneous speech. And by the way, I think it's one of the best I've ever seen. This guy was a young lawyer in the House of Representatives. And he stood up and he said, you know what? You're making a mistake. He said, the, the, it's, it's true that we can get other judges to handle these for the Supreme Court. But if you allow the Supreme Court justices to remain in Washington, they will become detached and they will become arrogant. And they will forget what it requires to be a judge. You know what? He was right. I mean, as much respect as I do have for members of the court, they are detached, and they are a little bit arrogant. But more importantly, I think that they are not in touch with what it takes to judge. What are the demands below? So my proposal is actually to increase the court to 19 members. Now, the court would actually only be 17, because I would have them ride circuit again. So I would have two justices, and we would cycle this. You wouldn't even actually do this for about 10 years. But every eight to 10 years or so, I, two of the justices would have to sit in lower courts for one year. Okay? And if you didn't like that, you could resign. But um, you have to go and be a judge again to actually apply the decisions that you have been handing down to get an idea of what it's like. And then we'd have a 17-member court, which would be the same size as basically two uh, comparison points that I made in my study. One was other countries, and other countries have, that's about the average of other countries. Uh, some are much larger. France is 149, I believe. Uh, but um, that's only because half of them don't come back from lunch. Um, but um, it's about the size of other, uh, other uh, um, countries. It's also the size of the, the, in, the, the standard size of the in-bank court. And when I looked at in-bank courts, courts that when you have court of appeals, they usually decide in panels of three, but on really important cases, they'll decide in bank or if you uh, uh, went to a good school, en bon, okay? I, but um, I'm an American. I say in bank. And um, so they meet in bank. They're about 17 members. And I looked at that, and they don't have problems generally. I mean, they do have one judge you know, margins, but the interesting thing is it's not the same judge because if you've got 17 people, the one judge – 
is not going to be the same in criminal matters as it's going to be in social matters or economic matters or business matters. There's too many judges in the mix. So you don't have a swing justice or swing judge problem. In the Supreme Court, you do. And when we have a split like we have today, it becomes a court of one. That's what Sandra Day O'Connor was. She was the Supreme Court. And it was ridiculous. I mean, I mean, the fact is, no matter how you felt about Senator Day O'Connor, nobody appointed her to be a court of one, but she was. We would spend all of our time, over, you know, when we come back from summers, how does O'Connor feel now about abortion? How does she feel about the death penalty? And she would change. I mean, she would change. She would come back and it'd be like a 180 turn. And I remember just thinking, you know, James Madison's spinning in his grave, this idea that someone could come back from the summer and say, now I think we can have some limitations on abortion. And... You addicted. Now, Kennedy is now the swing vote. Um, he's not as much of a, I, I can't say a swinger, that could be misunderstood, <laughs> but um, he's not much as, as much of a swing vote as O'Connor because he's actually fairly consistent in a bunch of areas in voting on the right, particularly business areas, regulatory areas of that kind. On social areas, he's a true swing um, uh, vote. Uh, and it's wrong. Now, it also has an incredibly distortive effect, and this is one of them. Why are we not getting a hearing? Because it's too important. And this is logic in Washington. Right? This is, uh, I, this, outside Washington, this is completely illogical. Okay? But in Washington, if something's really important, you probably can't do it. Right? So this confirmation is really important. There's too much at stake, and so it's not going to happen. Why? Because there's only nine. Okay? So FDR had the right idea for the wrong reason. Right? He had the horseman problem. And he wanted to expand it. He thought they were too old. But he had the right idea. This court was too small. But we would get a lot of benefits. One is that we can actually have true confirmation hearings again. Because even when you get a confirmation hearing in today's situation, it's ridiculous. Okay? There, there, you know, it's, it's really maddening. No serious questions are asked. Why? Because the answers are too important. So you don't ask serious questions. Now, once again, outside of Washington, it makes no sense at all. Washington, complete sense. So you have this kabuki where we ask these nonsensical questions. And the worst was John Roberts. You know, I was working, I think, for NBC back there. Maybe it was CBS. can't remember. But um, I was doing the coverage for one of the networks, and Roberts comes up. Now, here's a guy that I knew as a court of appeals lawyer. Not, not a friend, but I knew him fairly well, and I had a lot of respect for John Roberts. John Roberts is actually one of the best appellate lawyers I've ever seen in practice. He's really smart. And uh, he's really, just really good. I mean, in, in, in an appellate argument, he was one of those where you really, if you heard he was going to give an argument, if you were in the court, you'd go and see him. He was really good. So I thought, this is cool, because finally, we're going to have a nominee who can handle himself. This guy is not going to have to take any cheats. I mean, he can really do this. So I show up, in there, and, and so I'm doing the coverage, and Roberts comes in with his perfect family. Right? They look unbelievable. First of all, Roberts is just perfect, right? And he has like 2.3 children, and they're like in saddle shoes, and his perfect wife. And I remember turning to my producer saying, oh, my God. You know, Carl Rove is growing these guys hydroponically in the basement. You know, he's got some hydroponic farm, and they're just raising them and putting them behind glass that says break for nomination. And uh, it's just like, Damn. These people are perfect. And so he goes, and I thought, okay, this is just going to be, this is going to be a slaughter when, when these people try to throw constitutional questions at John Roberts. So uh, it proceeds forward, and John, and they said, what type of justice uh, do you want to be? And Roberts did this really long, dramatic pause, and he said, 
I view myself, Senator, as an umpire, like in baseball. And the senator said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Did you say an umpire like in baseball? And he said, yes, Senator. So you would be calling balls and strikes. He says, yes, I would call balls and strike. And the senator said, you mean like an umpire? And he said, yes, <laughs> like an umpire. And someone else said, in baseball, yes. <laughs> this went on for like an hour. And so you'd be behind the plate checking for balls and strikes. Yes, Senator, like an umpire. Yeah. And I was ready to snap my neck. I was like, what? What? And, and so this goes on. And then not long after, this one senator says, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to move on. I was like, thank you. Because I thought, okay, Roe v. Wade, death penalty, here it comes. And he goes, I know this is off the subject, but what's your favorite movie? And I actually turned to a producer and said, did, did he just ask for his favorite movie? And my producer said, yeah. Yeah, and so, but the amazing thing with John Roberts is it's like he had been trained for this. And I have a feeling he was, yes. And he goes, uh, that would be Dr. Zhivago, Senator. And one of the other says, I love that movie. <laughs> and this was the first time in my career I walked out. And I told my producer, like, I don't know what CBS needs. They either need a sports critic or a movie critic, <laughs> but they sure the hell don't need me. And, uh, and so I just left because it was like, it was embarrassing. I was not going to go on air and say, well, you know, I think an umpire is better than a ref. Uh, um, you know, what's that? Well, it's because it's all a kabuki because it's so important, right? And then you have the Ginsburg rule, which is genius. Okay? Now, First of all, part of the problem with a small court in the split is that you can't have a nominee who has ever had or uttered a single interesting thought in their lives. <laughs> right? You can't. So if you've said or done anything interesting, even remotely interesting, you are totally unacceptable. Right? So it's called the, you know, what I call the blind date nominee. Right? It, it, the nominees people look for are what one senator described, uh, the person who actually found Senator Dale O'Connor, this is how he, he described it to the President of the United States. She is an empty portfolio. And he said, this is genius. Because there's nothing in her portfolio. She's never written anything. She's never said anything. She had a short stint in the legislature. Not much there. Short stint is the low court. There's nothing there. The Democrats will have nothing to ask her about. right? And it worked. right? It was perfect. And she went through. And so for the most part, we, we look for people who have said or done really not much at all. And, you know, with Souter, they found Souter in the woods. I mean, they found him in New Hampshire. He was, like, living like a troll under a bridge. I mean, he literally had a cabin in the woods. And the, one of the senators that picked them went to the cabin and, said, and described as, yeah, there's this cabin in the New Hampshire woods, and actually described what was inside, like the books, because no one had any idea what Souter believed. He was perfect. Right? They took him out of the woods, and he went through. Clarence Thomas, right? You know, they asked Clarence Thomas, how do you feel about Roe v. Wade? One of the very few substantive questions ever asked the nominee in modern confirmation. And he said, I, I haven't thought about it. <laughs> Here's a grown man. Now, you would think that the answer of the senators would be, well, why don't you leave? and go think about it, and come back, because you want to be on the Supreme Court of the United States. But instead, they were like, oh, okay. You know? And he said, I am going to think about this. You know? 
once I'm confirmed. Um, so you have the blind date nominees, and that's the standard. Kagan was like that. Kagan wrote only two articles as a law professor, which, by the way, is exceptionally low. And they were very safe articles. She was largely administrator. That's not saying anything against Justice Kagan. She's I'm very impressed with her as a person. But if you want my honest opinion, and God knows I get in trouble for giving it, would she have been on the top list if you had asked academics? Of course not. Of course not. I mean, let's get real. Nor would Sotomayor. Sotomayor wrote really short opinions. She was not viewed as a major force on, on the court. Does that mean that they're not smart and that they will not be great justices? Of course not. The point is, if we get another Brandeis, it'll be purely accidental. I mean, that's a fact. So if one of these people end up the next Brandeis, we hit the jackpot. Is that how we should select nominees? Of course not. You know, but that's the result of having nine uh, justices. So my proposal is there. It has gone nowhere. Um, but I will simply remind American citizens, you're looking at a farce. And the farce is not due to the division of the parties. I don't blame them at all. It's due to the fact that we have a nine-member court and no other major industrialized nation has that except for Canada, but they swap out. So uh, it's a huge mistake. Um, so... Uh, should we stop for questions? I probably uh, went way over. We've got time for two, perhaps, if you're quick. Yeah. Just a quick question. Yeah. Uh, Mark Halpern and John Hodlin are saying that all the time that McConnell's not the one to watch. It's if Grassley bends and opens up this hearing. Do you agree with that at all? That Gra they keep saying, watch Grassley, watch Grassley, watch yeah. Grassley every day. No, Gra you, yeah, the, the question is, you know, is, is, is McConnell really the sort of choke point, or is it Grassley? The answer is both. Uh, McConnell controls the floor. Grassley controls the committee. And the Senate uh, committee chairs have a huge amount of power. Can Grassley break from McConnell? Absolutely. Can he hold hearings? Absolutely. But once it gets to the floor, McConnell, that's McConnell's job. So you need both. But it's unlikely you're going to see a division between the two of them. Uh, the, court, the, Supreme court, uh, the White House tried that by putting forward a nominee from Grassley's state and floated her, uh, Flynn. And by the way, she was a really interesting nominee because she would have brought something that this court sh really dearly needs. She actually has experience as a, as, as a lawyer. She was a, a criminal defense attorney and a darn good one. And believe me, she would double the amount of experience on that court if she had gone there. You know. Uh, another question? Yeah. Oh, did you? Yes. Well, I think that the list is actually a very good list for conservatives, but it's also, look, a lot of people thought that he would nominate Judge Judy. Uh, so, you know, let's be frank, there was not a lot of expectations. But um, th the fact is that this is a, a, a responsible but conservative list. Some of those folks are very, uh, very conservative. Uh, I know some of them. I... Um, but they are serious minds. They're serious academics. They're just, they take a very conservative view. Um, would some of them be able to get through the Senate? I'd have my doubts with some of them. I mean, they're very hard right. But every one of them, I think, is qualified in the sense of being very good minds, very good background. Uh, but there are some real lightning rods there. But um, I thought it was a responsible list. Uh, a lot of those on that list, about 90% of them are well known. And if you ask conservatives, I would say at least four or five of those would have been on the top list of most conservatives, I would say. So it's a responsible list. 